Meine Damen und Herren, Mesdames, Messieurs, Ladies und Gentlemen, mein Name ist Betty Blochbuster und I am here to make you happy. It is my pleasure, it is my duty. In this companion episode, we continue our conversation with Australian theatrical icon Ridge Livermore. In part one, he discussed growing up in a conservative 1950s Sydney, his training, his influences, and his many forays into musical theatre. In part two, he reflects on his long career and examines his series of groundbreaking one-man shows, beginning with Betty Blockbuster and continuing through Wonder Woman and Sacred Cow. Livermore is a theatrical beast, a mischief, a maverick, and a larrikin clown. He is a chameleon who has rightly earned the accolade of legend. He is a composite super talent informed by burlesque, vaudeville, musical, Weimar, cabaret, the ballet, the opera, the classics and Gilbert and Sullivan. All forms have contributed to a most unique and vital talent. It's a career of peaks and troughs, thrills and spills. The performer has not only seized opportunities but created them. Our rich theatre heritage is just that because of his countless contributions on stage and off. He has offered us a chance to laugh at ourselves, embrace the outrageous and be changed by a reverberant and authentic repertoire of dynamic performances. Now, of course, in the echelons of Australian entertainment, there are your one-man shows, Mm. which people still talk about so vividly today. Dorothy Hewitt, reviewing Sacred Cow, states, Australia's greatest white-faced clown, the inimitable Livermore, sweetheart and bored. Piaf, Punch, Ariel, Pagliacci and Charlie Chaplin. The heart of Ridge's show is that we are forced to see the self teeming with life and ransomed with death. He is everyone's nightmare and everyone's dream. That's pretty pretty, it's pretty good, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> well, it's better than some, somebody saying you were shithouse. <laughs> oh, gosh, yes. I mean, but, but you know, referencing you as drawing on... Those great characters, comic and tragic, like Piaf, um, Punch, Ariel from The Tempest, Charlie Chaplin. Mm. You must have been thrilled by that response. Well, of course I was. But look, I... but look, she goes on to liken you to Esther Williams, Falstaff, Bottom, Touchstone, Audrey, Leah's Fool, Lenny Bruce and Roy Reen. Yes, uh... But, but I, I don't know how that's... she saw all of that, but, but as but, I tell you, you know, as I said to you earlier, what I did when I got to my one-man shows was uh, try to draw on everything that had touched me or influenced me in the theatre. And so all of those people, in some way, are a part of me. I don't know about it sometimes. Sometimes I might be aware. Yeah. But like a sponge, you've absorbed everything you've seen and yep. read and watched, and 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 that's, that's and reinvented them somehow. You know, it's a, or used it to my advantage. You've taken their essence and you've you've created your own unique, defining, mm. original mm. talent. Yeah, yeah. But I, we had, look when we put the show together, we had no idea what what we were creating. You know, I was writing it, and Peter Beatty was overseeing you know the direction and all that sort of stuff and and the lighting and. And, you know, when we finally came to see it on the stage with the set I designed and the, the lighting that he'd, he'd created, and, and, you know, we suddenly thought, my God, what is this? What is this thing? Look at it. 
looked like a German cabaret of some sort. Yeah, some, it's, it's got elements of Weimar and elements it, of musical and yes, burlesque. Yes, yes, all, all of that. Yeah. And, uh, but, you know, I was, I was a fellow who was heading towards 40 and um, the opportunity had come up. Eric Dare had offered me to a one-man show and I'd never, ever crossed my mind. I thought that was Barry Humphrey's domain. But having said, yes, I'll do it, and him uh, having the Bijou Theatre at Balmain and then offering to put stalls in, because there were no stalls there, it was just a concrete floor, and then the upper circle, or the dress circle, was used for the old uh, golden oldie movies that he was showing there. So this became... So the Bijou Theatre was a cinema? Yeah, it, yeah it was, okay. yeah. I think years and years and years ago, yep. it was the National Theatre, and way, way back. Anyway... So the opportunity came and I just grabbed it. I thought, oh, God, you know, here we go. I'll do everything I can. Probably too much. But some of the shows were three hours long. So, but I needed to. Look, it was just, I I was ready for it. Even though I didn't know it. I didn't know it. You favoured that stylistic white face Mm. that makeup look for all of your shows and your characters. What was the choice behind that? Well, basically, it was it was a uh, Frankenfurter's face. He, he, I had a white face for that. I mis, I'm, you know, the lips were very ugly and distorted, and uh, you know, I had miles of false eyelashes and crap on my face. Well, it's a mask. But isn't it, it? Yeah, yeah, but the thing was, I could be male or female without having to stick on a false moustache or worry about lipstick. I mean, it was there all the time, whatever I was going to be. Yes, it's a neutral mask, so we're, and no matter what age you're playing, male or female, yes. It, it, and so the audience does a lot of the work for you. One face fits all. Yes, yeah, yes. <laughs> it, was a, it was an expedience, there's no doubt about it, yeah. you know, because I didn't have to worry about it. And, and I know that people did see me sometimes with Frankenfurter. They you know, didn't know whether I was a man or a woman. That There was that sort of ambiguity going on mm. with, with the actual character. And then here I am doing, sometimes playing women, sometimes playing you know, men in my own shows, and, and the mask works brilliantly well. Mm. And so why, why, why would I not? I don't, I don't think that the shows would have been as effective if I just appeared with my own dial. Surely it wouldn't have. I am the entertainer, I know just where I stand Another serenader and another long hair band Today I am your champion, I may have won your horse But I know the game, you forget my name I won't be here in another year if I don't stay on the charts How does a character like Betty Blockbuster be born? Not the show, the character. The character, yes. Well... Um, prior to us starting rehearsals, I was in Melbourne and I was staying with Peter Beatty in in North Carlton and I was writing the show there. And one day we needed to get some photographs. So we went to a, like a costume hire department and um, I just picked out a lot of stuff that might have somehow fitted roughly some of the characters that I was creating. And uh, I'd always, just for a joke, wanted to do a, a sort of Marilyn Monroe picture, you know, with the bare ass and looking over my shoulder with the, the, um, the feather, feather duster. duster, you know, and the high heel shoes. And the uh, fob and, hats. And the mob cap, mm. yes. And uh, so I did that. And uh, anyway, in due course, the photographs were sent to Eric Dare, uh, who, who, you know, who was the executive producer and paid for everything. 
Um, and he saw this photograph of this creature and he said, who's this one? I said, well, I don't know. I don't know. I just wanted to do it for fun, you know, just for my own amusement. He said, can she be in the show? I said, I suppose so. I suppose so. So I, I'd, I'd always thought that I was going to have a, some sort of a, a ringmaster or ringmistress who would oversee the, the circus aspects of, of the show. And so I thought, well, why can't it be this person who, um, who does that role, even though I'm dressed like that? Uh, and, and uh, you know, I knew, I already knew that, uh, that whoever was, was doing that role had to, um, whatever character was used for the, uh, the, the ringmaster or ringmistress, uh, was going to have to lead the audience into the shows. And so that's where I've entered the um, the scoreboard that used to come on behind Betty, which had all of the uh, instructions like laugh, clap, like you do in a television studio, yeah, yeah. you know, when you're a studio audience, yes. laugh, clap. And so we had all of them. Some of them were shocking, like masturbate or, <laughs> or cough or whatever, you know, but, but at least they knew when to laugh and when to... Um, yeah, they yes, they were told what to do, and so I needed somebody of authority, and I don't really know where the title came from, Betty Blockbuster, except at the show. Maybe I was dreaming of doing a blockbuster of a show. Um, Betty Block, who used to have be Block's ballet shoes, always threatened to, well, didn't threaten. She just thought right. that I'd named it after her. She was B L O C H. Yes, she was. Yeah, so. Um, and and some, somehow she became, you know, a, sort of a German Fräulein and um, mistress of some of those awful people that told people what to do in the wartime. Yeah, yeah, all of that sort of stuff. Did you set out to be as outrageous as you possibly could? No, in the not show? really. No, no. no. It was just to have a good time. And... But, but it was free. I was free. You know, I was free to do whatever I wanted to do. But I guess those shows were awakening an, an Australian audience at the time into sort of theatre that could be a bit naughty and mm. risque and, and seductive and even well, arouse them. Well, exactly. Mm. You know, as we already said, that the hair started the, the journey for them, and, and, you know, what they were seeing, what they were hearing. Mm. Um, and then Rocky, you know, was out of bounds, really. It was just like, goodness gracious me, there's something going on, something dirty happening in the woodshed or behind the woodshed. We should all go and see it. And so I was really just moving on from there in terms of uh, how I appeared. Um, but I wasn't, I wasn't unable to say things or, you know, I had one, one sketch which I took out because Eric didn't like it and in the end I didn't like it either. Um, but, but, but it was just, that, that was offensive, I think. Although it, 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 I, did, I did play it all through the show except when, when we came to release the DVD of the movie of Betty Blockbuster, I took it out. I thought, oh, I don't really need this on my epitaph, my gravestone. Following around? Yeah, yeah. Well, how are you? Oh, the very, very nice sprinkling of people you are the restaurant. It's really very nice to see you. It's lovely, lovely, great wafts of personal diodorant fill my nostrils and name of steak. It's beautiful, it's really beautiful. A bit thick over this side. <laughs> Somebody slipped the shoes off. Oh, you, you. I wonder, would you mind awfully if we had a little bit of a chat? 
I'm starved for conversation. I really am. I'm past for it even. There's not too many people wish to bother themselves with antiquities these days. But I'm humanised too, aren't I? I've got a pair of brains, haven't I? I've got a few bowels to grind before I shuffle off this mortal elf oil. This silver stone stretching the silver sea. Shakespeare made this beautiful stuff, isn't it? This is beautiful. I'm very, very disappointed to announce that I've fallen upon extreme hard times of late. I wasn't at always this downy and out, you'll understand. Oh, no. No, no. Once upon a time, I was a parakeet of high fashion. I was a couturier's eyeful. But this is 30 years ago, to which I'm referring, of course, but I was beautiful. I really was a very beautiful person. As a matter of fact, I was a male model. I was, I was. You could have rung the Griffin Agency and asked them to send over something stunning and you'd have got me. <laughs> look at me now. Now look at me. Oh, God, it's pathetic, isn't it? It's just so pathetic. What a very expressive word, pathetic. I shall say it again. <laughs> anyway, as fate would agree, I later got itched to a lovely sort of a lass of a type of a woman person whom I married as she became my wife. At the other end of the spectrum to Betty Blockbuster, we've got a character called Leonard. Yes. How was Leonard born? Well, Leonard was certainly a nod to Roy Reen Moe. Yeah. Yeah. So that's why I, you know, like he did, and uh, he was he was a great character, Leonard, um, because he was a chauvinist. He he could say what he wanted to say. He could offend people. I mean, people were offended, but not easily offended as they are today. Um, so I don't think today I would get away with half the things I did. You know. Would be taken to task for sure. Well, there, but, there was that wonderful character Beryl, who's chained to the sink and can't cope with the kids. That's right. Yes, yes. Breaks. Yes. But, Smash a plate. A killer plate. Save a baby. Yeah. Yes, but right. but that was you know I watched um, some old YouTube um, stories on on the show at the time, and the audience reaction. A lot of housewives were saying, "Yes, I really understand that character." Mm, well, know? they they came in busloads. Mm. The the housewives. Probably to see Beryl because how do you know? They'd often say to me, "How do you know?" I used to just say rather facile, "Oh well, uh, I can imagine," and I could imagine all of these situations. Although I have an aunt, or had an aunt, who said, "Why did you call her Beryl?" She said, "I was always at the sink." This is when I lived with them for two years, you know, during the war, the Second World War. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Why did you call her Beryl? I don't know, but maybe, but you know, she was washing up all the time. Maybe, Hmm. you know, I was a five or six-year-old. It's sort of it's there in your semi-conscious. Yeah. What about Irene, the large girl who was addicted to pills? Yes. Well, I don't know where she came from. I mean, she was a mixture of a, a drinker and, and, a, and a pill taker. Pill but there's popper. great pathos in the shows as well. As well, yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think yeah. so. Um, 
Look, I, I don't, never wanted to do just a stand-up routine. You know, I call them monologues because that's really what they are and they are character-driven. And they're a social commentary, would you say? Yeah, I think yeah, so, yeah. I think so. Yeah. But I often, thought, often also thought of myself as a social worker at the time. Yeah. Some of the things I was discussing and enacting and on behalf of the audience who knew exactly what was going on but were not always free to talk about it or to do anything about it, you know, the situations they found themselves in. So, you know, my line-up of survivors, which is what, how I regard my characters, is that the odds that have been stacked against them and how they manage to keep going. And, um, you know, they become, they, they ennoble themselves in many ways. So, um, yeah, but Leonard, yes, I, I loved Roy Ren, though I never saw him, I only heard him on the, the air, but I needed a character and I thought that if I'm going to have an everyman like that, then he, he's a good um, role model and, and he's funny to listen to. It's like some pornographic magazine and you smile. Select the musical content for the show because you know there's a vast array of uh, influences there. Leo Sayer and Elton John and Charles Aznavour and Candor and Ebb, Lou mm. Reed. Mm, mm. Well, they're all, all bits and things that I was listening to at the time or that came my way. I mean, Jim Sharman came back from England and he gave me a Leo Sayer record, so that's why Leo Sayer ended up in the show because there were no songs there that I wanted to do. And I suppose if you'd heard something that was commenting on. A character yes, or a monologue yeah, yeah. that you could sort of bookend that. Exactly. I mean, and then when Billy Joel's record with Captain Jack came out, we were well into rehearsals. And I remember I played it one night and I said, oh, my God, that's got to be in the show. That song's got to be in the show. And it became a bit of a, you know, a talking point, Captain Jack. Um, but the, basically it was the stuff that I was listening to and I may have gone out searching for things at the time that, that you know, at, that was at my fingertips. Who knows? I don't, I'm not sure exactly, except it wasn't very difficult to choose them because often the songs were the other side of the coin to the characters, to the characters' monologues. As with um, the Asnivore, What Makes a Man, A Man, you know, because there was the ricotta, the drag queen, <laughs> and then, you know, you get... It's, it's very funny... Very funny. But in the end, you know, she says that she just wants to live a perfectly normal life and then... Um, it's hysterical. Like get married and live, a, you know, get a nice husband. You must have filmed that monologue for television because I watched that recently. I mean, that hysterical moment, she's talking about homosexuality. It said, we did very well at the last Olympics. That's <laughs> Yes, I don't know where that came from. <laughs> gold. Oh, yeah. gold, yes. Yeah. And all the ones she names... Yes, 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 yes. They're all there. No, 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 no. I never knew my father. He was in the Navy, of course. 
a ship that passed through Mum's nighty, so to speak. But I think you could see, can't you? You look like an understanding person. I'm, I was never deprived or anything. It wasn't a sordid situation like a broken home or nothing like that. I mean, I had the best of everything. I honestly believe that God made me what I am. I was born this way and so I've had to accept it. God knows I've had to. I don't mind. I'm an Australian homosexual and I'm proud of the fact. We did very well at the last Olympics, my dear, let me tell you. I don't mind if people call me Puff or Queenie or any of those unfortunate names because I realise all along I am in the very best of company. You think about it for a moment. Julius Caesar? Yes. William Shakespeare? Yes. Michelangelo? George Raft? Etc. Etc. Yes, yes, yes. Skippy? That's a joke, Joyce. My dear, you're camp, aren't you? Anyway, I've been working at Lay Dames now for about, well, it must be, God, what would it be, five years. Good, steady drag. I'm accepted by the ordinary people, you see, by the streets. It's sort of respectable now because it's been accepted, in the accepted sense of the word. We bring the blokes undone, certainly, you betcha. But that's only because they've never seen anything like us before in their whole lives ever. But when the show's over and they go home afterwards, they know that with just a little extra trouble, their wives could look as good as we do. Yes, excuse me, dear. My throat's in shreds, it really is. It's all this miming. I believe you found it difficult to get the papers to review you. The Herald was saying, we don't review drag shows. Yes, that's with with the Betty. So did it take a while to actually educate, uh, not your audiences perhaps, because they certainly certainly took flight, Um, Mm. but but the media sort of to say what this show was. I suppose there was nothing like it and people were finding it hard to define it. Yeah, well, the Herald did say that and and they didn't come. Maybe, Maybe eventually they had to come. But as far as, um, see, Rocky did a lot of the work for, for me in terms of getting people used to the idea that theatre could be like this, could be this entertaining or could be this outrageous. But as, is, as was the case with the new art cinema, Glee, where the Rocky Horror Show started, it took them about three months, three and a half months, to find the theatre. Because they didn't, most of Sydney didn't know about Glee Point Road and didn't know about the, the, the New Art Cinema, which was later to become the Valhalla. The same with the Balmain Bijou. That took us about three months. I thought we were only going to run, at the most, three months. Uh, but that's how long it took for them to find Darling Street and, you know, where, where, where um, the Bijou was. But they were ready for it. You know, the the preview night of the Betty Bockbuster was incredible. I mean, they just went wild. I was very, very shocked. I just didn't know what was happening. But that's how it stayed, really. I, you know, it was I, it was really a big A for effort for for the audience, really, too. And I guess you're thinking, oh, I better do something about this dressing room and make it comfortable for the next... <laughs> however long you were going to inhabit it. Yeah, yeah. paint it, do all that sort of stuff. So Wonder Woman, uh, your next show, mm. yeah, a response to the feminist movement. It was, yeah. yes, yep. It was it, that came about when we were performing um, Betty at the Adelaide Festival in 1976, and we played six six weeks in Adelaide. We were only going to do two, and you know, such was the 
the reaction, we'd say for six, but the reaction was the same in all of the capital cities. People didn't know what this show was, so it took a long, not a long time, but it took some time for the show to open, for the reviews to come out, for people to see it and to talk about it. So we were in Adelaide and one night we were having supper somewhere in somebody's house and there was a, a feminist who was just honestly driving me mad what she was saying and I, I didn't say anything to her much. I probably couldn't hold my tongue, I don't know what it was about, but it just seemed so unreasonable. Very difficult conversation-wise, mm. you know, and I'd already had a run-in in the theatre in Adelaide where, you know, um, a whole pile of lesbians were in one night up the back and they were shouting out at me, you know, we don't need your sympathy, Reg. And somebody came up the aisle, and a, a, a nice girl, and she was saying something and I leaned over the stage and said, oh, how do you do? You've got lovely eyes. And she grabbed my hand and she dragged me into the auditorium. So and That then, was probably a stalker back again. Well, no, it wasn't her. No, it wasn't her. I, no, I never forget the stalker. Um, so I was used to that sort of thing. Anyway, I just thought oh, I can. That that that's an impetus for a show. Is is the is the the role of, of you know the emerging feminist, the feminism, and um, and I was quite sympathetic to a lot of it. You know, Beryl is a hymn to it, really, to to what can happen to women. You know, who are just tired of the kitchen sink. So from the thought of, of writing something about the, the situation, you know, that, that was happening in Sydney and Australia at the time, the feminism, the rise of the, the militant woman, um, as I saw it, I decided to then use the, 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 the role reversal, that the, the women become the men and the men become the women, their roles, you know, in society. So there was the... Um, there was the character Alison Diesel, who was the one who um, ran the service station, the gas station, and she changed roles with her husband. He was he had to stay home and look after the kids and do the cooking, and she she ran the station. But that was a, I thought that was a great sketch, and that's still relevant, really, if you sit down and listen to that one. Sacred Cow, a burlesque. Now, you took that one to London, didn't you? Well, I took a show called Sacred Cow to London, right. which was um, bits of Betty, bits of Wonder Woman and bits of Sacred Cow that, that was seen in Australia. So it was like a, yes, well, what would you call it? Just a hodgepodge. Hodgepodge, yeah. yeah. The best of. Yeah, the best yeah. of, almost yeah. the best of. Was it well received? No, no, well, no, I don't think so. What does that do to your confidence? Well, that was shattering, that one. That was really... Because you'd been riding such a high in Australia. Mm, and there were high expectations from all of my fans in Australia who were wishing me well. And and um, I get there and, and then on the last preview or one of the previews, this, this, this riot breaks out in the, in the auditorium. And... Um, I I was this was the ballet you know the footballer ballet dancers and this is where Vaseline, it came to a, you know, that's where it came to a head during that monologue and I the audience was sort of divided and they were almost shouting across the aisles at each other you what, know some the, people adoring it and some mm, people hating uh, yeah, it yeah and what some fellow ran up the aisle and shook his fist at me said I'll give you two weeks in this town he was almost right to the day because the show only lasted about two and a half weeks in London. But I was there, I was only three minutes into this 15-minute monologue, and I thought, my God, how am I ever going to survive this? Because I had to. I had to, the show had to go on, and I had to continue. But um, as, as 
as, as it turned out, there was a correspondent from the Australian newspaper in that night. Oh. And so a report of the performance was sent through to Australia and I got a call from somebody um, on one of the newspapers about half past three in the morning in London saying, um, you said, uh, I think you said something about you wouldn't be able to upset uh, any, uh, upset Londoners. And I said, oh, well, I've just done it. I've just done it. And uh, that's when they started to... This press started to turn against me back home. You know, when the Daily Telegraph said that um, I was giving Australia a bad name and that I should be more like the Seekers, or why wasn't I more like the so Seekers? This is a case of the tall poppy syndrome. They just wanted to. Oh, cut I you think down. it was. I think so. Yeah. And um, and the reviews in London were pretty awful because you know they didn't really like Australians, so it was filled with um, you know, all right for Australians on a rainy day, spelt phonetically, or I should be deported back to Botany Bay. Did they not understand the show? Because I mean. It's well, a very Australian sensibility, I suppose, that the show. Oh, I don't know. Some look. Some people loved it. I. Um, and that's what matters, I guess. Yes. It, yeah, well, it does. Yes. And the fact that you can move an audience, whether they adore it or dislike it, mm. is something. Yeah, it is. It's just unnerving to go through one of those experiences mm. because. So, how do you rebuild your confidence and re- retain your resilience and go on to the next thing? Well, fortunately for me, Barnum came along, right. which was had nothing to do with my one-man shows, and I was not responsible for it. I didn't write it, um, and it was a, a, an antidote, really, just to get me back on, 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 on the straight now, really. Oh, train, journey ends and stars again. I remember, yes, I remember. You've been the leading man in a few big musicals, as we discussed in the last episode. What are the demands on an actor leading a company? You know, when you have to be an example and a role model, answer to the producers, lead the company. Well... Do you enjoy that role? Y- yes, I don't consciously set out to do that, but somebody's the captain. Yes. Usually it's the leading player. Um... Uh, well, you know, I'm interested in all the other people who I work with, and you know, you get more more or less involved with them and, and get to know them, and um, and you are setting an example by being the sort of, sort of performer you are, or the sort of performer I am, which is, although it may not sound it, but I am disciplined, you know, and I do know what I'm doing, and I do give it my best shot. So, it is it's it's a responsibility, and I. But how much, uh, you know, how much of an impact it has really on the outcome, I don't know. I really don't know. Do you read your reviews? Oh, I do, yeah. yeah. Mm. 
I mean, I, th- I think actors would be lying if they said they didn't. Yes, they would be, wouldn't they? <laughs> but I can just as easily quickly hurl them aside or get angry, you know, yeah. get angry sometimes. It's one person's opinion, ultimately. Well, that's all it is. That's all it is. And, they, you know, they don't... They don't um, often they don't consider what, what the task is, you know, what's required of the actor, how successful they've been at what they've been going after, you know, in terms of a performance or... What, what what else is happening in, in the show? And um, it's facile, really, often the reporting. But um, we all like better notices than bad ones. Mm. Mm. You um, also write insightfully about working relationships in the theatre, as eloquently as I've ever, ever seen it put. Uh, we often hear companies referred to as families, but as we discussed last episode, it is a job. And you say, my other friendships uh, in theatre have been warily engaged. We come in on some tide, bobbing like small craft on smooth and sometimes choppy water, then break our moorings and drift apart. It's the best way. And I think that gets back to your point about it being a job. Mm. But you had a long-lasting friendship with John Ewing. Yes, I did, yes. Tell me about that. Well, I met John um, at the Independent Theatre. We were both cast in... um the Merchant of Venice. And John was outrageous, really. He played one of what they call the salads, Salerio and Salerno or something, the two characters. I never understand why they're in the show at all. (laughs) But anyway, John wasn't... (laughs) Let that stand in his way. So he was a very um, flamboyant creature. I'd never seen anybody like him, never come across anybody, met anybody like him. And... uh, but we got on well, and he was very—he was very amusing. And then, of course, we became deeply entrenched as friends, uh, or you know, um, acquaintances, but theatre friends. And um, when the Hayes Gordon situation developed, and so uh, we were both very involved there. And so we were—we fed each other, you know. I mean, he was funny, I was funny, and. He he was bitchier than me, but I I tried to be sometimes as bitchy as he was. That's just theatrical, you know. That's yes, what, of course, we were all like that. Yeah, we were yeah. all like that. Was he intimidating at all? I think he was. If you're on the wrong side of him, right? Yeah, but I never really was. Um, I I valued our friendship very much, but we started to drift. Part I think I got the sense that I was lagging behind in terms of my development or my even my understanding and uh, of 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 the uh, the training that we were going through and how to best express what was happening or what what we were being you know which garden path we were being led along um, and but he he was he was he knew exactly what was required and he knew how to talk about it discuss it uh, act upon it. Um, and I just thought uh, he was of more value probably to, to Hayes in the theatre than I was, but, but we were a naughty couple. Hayes didn't really like us because we weren't the plasticine he wanted to work with. You know, we, we'd already developed bad habits, according to Hayes. <laughs> well, you know, we'd both been on the stage quite a lot, mm. and so, you know, what we were doing may not have been what was required, but we did our best, and um... you've had tremendous creative output. And I'm not just talking on the stage. When you haven't been working, you've um, painted, you've gardened, you've cooked, 
you ran a restaurant for a while. Mm-hmm. How important is it for a an artist to to nourish their soul with those sorts of things when they're not? Working? Well, I think if you're a creative animal, and uh, you, you're not always getting your rocks off in in the venue of choice, like in the theatre, then you you still want to be creative, a force of some sort, um, just for your own satisfaction. Uh, sometimes you can be equally successful doing something else. So yes, I I. You know, the garden is a creative uh, um, effort. Painting is, cooking is, uh, writing is. So I'm not, I'm never champing in the bit saying, "Oh God, I wish I was on the stage tonight." I never do that because I've been on the stage many nights. Um, but if something comes along, and you know it's suitable, or I'm suitable, then you have to think about whether to commit yourself really. But all those other little aspects of creativity, they are nourishing and they are fueling that drive that you have, really. Your parents sound like they were the most amazing and supportive folk. Mm. If I can read from chapter 16, Rug From Under Me. Parents die and children move to the head of the queue. My father died as the producers was preparing to open in Brisbane. He was a fine man, gentle, true, loving, loyal and fair. He had a great sense of humour, enjoyed his life. I think that's beautiful. A beautiful way to remember a parent. Mm. Yeah. No, he was a fine man and he was... But he was part of that outgoing side of of the family, you know, on my my father's side and the sisters and the singers and the, you know, entertainers and and the sense of humour... And um, he was very popular because he was in... Um, he didn't spend his life managing the, the Orpheum Theatres, but he was in the newspaper game as a advertising rep. So he was dealing with people all the time, selling them the space in the newspaper. And uh, he was popular, very popular. But he was a nice man, he really was, and he was so proud of me. Yeah. He'd always have a photograph or something in his briefcase that he could show one of his clients and... Uh, so I was very grateful for they that. They both had a fair innings, didn't they? Oh, yes, they did, yeah, yeah. yeah. You also say in your memoir, the future is always just around the corner. I try not to worry too much about it. I know it doesn't stretch endlessly before me like the Hume Highway. <laughs> the more so as I'm beginning to wonder yet again if it might be appropriate to gracefully retire. Does an actor ever retire? I don't know. I may be about to find out. Really? I, well, I'm not sure. I mean, look, as look, recently as you, you, you've done Dr. Pangloss in Candy. Yes, in I, yeah, I did. I did. Um, I, and then I did um, a play of my own called The Widow Unplugged. The, the ensemble, ensemble yeah. yeah. And that was a, oh, you know, wasn't a pleasant experience, really. Shouldn't have done it. Why? Oh, I don't know. I've spent three years writing it, and you know, these things are like babies. You've got to get them out of you, and so I did. And but I think did, it might you, have been, did you not enjoy performing it? Or? I found it very difficult because of the, the proximity of the audience. In that case, I mean, I was well used to the ensemble mm. and how close they are, mm. but this was really in in their faces, and a lot of you know of their older subscribers and clientele. I don't think were too happy with me, and I found it very difficult. I don't think I well I know I wouldn't write anything for myself again um, but no I won't say yes I am retiring but I'm you, you, I'll wait and see what happens and that's what we always do isn't it we wait see either the phone rings or somebody drops you a note and says would you be interested you don't know what's around the corner don't know what's around the corner but I've had a fair innings and I'm not complaining 
Thank you for um, for chatting to Stages today. It's it's been an absolute joy. You are an icon of our theatre heritage, um, and I feel real, really privileged to be able to sit down and talk to you, Reg. So so thank you. Well, Peter, it's a pleasure. I wish I'd been a little uh, clearer about what I mean. <laughs> <laughs> I think you were you were right on the button. There. Oh, well, oh, it's great. Yeah. No. But thank you so and, much. And our listeners are going to going to really enjoy listening to you. And and can I say also, Stages the memoir is available at all good bookshops. Right. Yes, you can say that. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Reg. Thank you very much, Peter. Reg's memoir, Stages, is now available from all good bookstores. It's a riveting read and I highly recommend it to fans of Reg and to anyone fascinated by theatre and the people who create the magic. Please subscribe to the podcast and stay up to date with every new guest episode as it is released. We're available in iTunes, Spotify and Wooshka. Don't forget to rate and review the podcast. It helps to grow our audience and reach more Stages listeners. This has been another exciting episode of the award-winning podcast Stages. I'm Peter Ayers. Thanks for listening. Ah!